welcome to episode 19 of the Brown and Black Podcast. My name is Jack Rico. And I'm Mike Sargent. Why are you always late on that one, man? It's 20 episodes in. Shut up. Okay. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Shut up. And every week we take a look at race and pop culture through a brown and black lens. On this episode, we interview legendary actor Louis Gossett Jr. and the director Sergio Navarreta about their new movie, The Cuban, where Louis Gossett Jr. plays Luis Garcia, a former Cuban jazz musician who has been living in a nursing home since being diagnosed with dementia. In a time where our country is sensitive about actors playing roles not native to their culture, did Mr. Gossett Jr. commit cultural appropriation or cultural appreciation? We asked in point blank just that. Our show will also focus on exactly what that means, how TV and film history has treated the subject, and what Hollywood is doing about it now. right into cultural appropriation or cultural appreciation, Mike, you and I had a chance to go in-depth in our last episode to talk about the death and rebirth of movie theaters, where it looks like the rebirth has come a little sooner. Looks like Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York is reopening theaters in New York. Now, if you remember, most theaters have opened up in the United States, except New York City and Los Angeles fully. And this was one of the reasons that Warner Brothers and John Stanky, the CEO of AT&T, who owns Warner Brothers, said in a recent uh, business call uh, with the press that he didn't think that Tenet was anything to write home about. You know, it wasn't a home run simply because these two cities have such power into what the ultimate box office numbers uh, are that uh, he thought it was sort of a mediocre run. But now that they're opening in the state of New York, it'll be really interesting to see what movies do come out and how they fare. Now, the other issue is, um, when will the city reopen? When will Los Angeles fully reopen? And if they do reopen, Mike, the question is, will you be seeing, I don't know, jam-packed theaters with lines outside just because they're reopening? And I think this is a problem that a lot of the... CEOs of Regal and AMC and Cineworld, et cetera, et cetera. I think they have like a fantasy that they're playing in their head. Dude, when I all agree. of a sudden they reopen and I'm there. I, like all the critics are there, all the people are there to go see Hocus Pocus Part Two. I mean, like I, I, I don't, I don't know where they're getting that we're all dying to go back to the theater. Well, first of all, Hocus Pocus Two will bring everybody back to the theater. <laughs> But but no, no, you're you're absolutely right. You know, it's interesting because you, you put it very succinctly. They're living in this fantasy. There's this wish that everybody's going to come back. But I truly believe that our, our audience, as we talked about last week, I think it's fractured. I think there are people now like there's no way they're going to go. You know, it it was always not necessarily convenient to go to the movies. It was always expensive to go to the movies. Now 
If your finances are uncertain with the economy, with jobs, and on top of that, the messages are conflicting about where the virus is. And we all know going into the winter, it's going to get worse. Being mm-hmm. in, being indoors is the worst thing you can do. Especially for two hours. Not even a restaurant. At a restaurant, you're there for about an hour. So according to Cuomo, uh, beginning October 23rd, which is the day of the recording of this podcast, movie theaters outside of New York City will be allowed to reopen at 25% capacity with up to 50 people maximum per screen. This is outside of New York City, just to reemphasize that, in areas that have infection rates below 2%. Now, I heard statewide, New York is at about at 1.1%. It's excellent. But there are some hot spots like in Brooklyn and Queens. Manhattan's doing well, believe it or not. The last three days, I think it reported like a 0.6% uh, infection rate. So I still don't know why Manhattan still hasn't opened. I, you know, it's really interesting. A lot of restaurant people have talked about the double-edged sword, like the catch-22, the contradiction of both inside industries. They need people to be inside, and I think they've allowed it to open to 25% capacity. Not many people do it, though. Why not the movie theaters? Well, a couple of things here. I think that the movie theaters, you have a lot more potential, not only for conflict, but also for... Okay, you open up in a community where you got a 2% rate. If I am someone who loves movies, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to travel to that movie theater. Right. You'd probably fly to a different state just to go see a movie. Of course. If I live 45 minutes you know, away from you know, whatever the closest upstate theater is, if I'm a real movie person, I'll drive, I'll take the train or whatever. I'll come from my infected area. So again, I, I, do, I, think, I think it's a tough call. On the one hand, businesses do need to reopen and whatnot. But I, you know, I don't know. There are a lot of things that are luxuries that we've taken for granted. I, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't understand people who are traveling in vacation during the pandemic. You know, I, I don't understand. It's like they're, they're, they're off on vacation. They've flown somewhere and they're pissed because... Hey, man, I already got COVID, so that means I'm immune for life. You know, we're trapped here because, you know, I, I, I just, uh, you know, I don't know. Hey, that's what Donald Trump said in the debate the other day. He's like, uh, you know, um, I got COVID and I could be immune for a lifetime or just maybe for four months. Uh, but I mean, I don't know. But, you know, that's what they say. Exactly. It, it, it's <laughs> like, why are you bringing him up in our podcast? <laughs> you know why? Because there's an election coming up November 3rd. And I'm sure people are riddled with anxiety about what's going on. Uh, I just went to the doctor today. Politics came up. Of course it's, it's, it's crazy. It, it's 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 absolutely insane. But Mike, did you hear about this huge ordeal that happened to poor Chris Pratt? The backlash that hit him because they found out that he was a You know what? It's not even confirmed because he hasn't come out and said anything, but this woman named Amy Berg, who I think is a TV writer, went on Twitter and said and put four Chris's and it yes. was Chris Evans, Chris Pratt, uh, Chris Hemsworth, and what was the other Chris? Chris Pine. And Chris Pine from Star Trek and Wonder Woman. And he says, one must go. <laughs> I never thought that, that would go viral, but everybody went after Chris Pratt because supposedly, allegedly, the dude is a Republican and is a Trump supporter. 
Or if you're a Republican, then you're a Trump supporter. And the Avengers who were doing a Joe Biden, that was another thing, is that he had not accepted to be a part of a Joe Biden invitation that they were doing on Zoom with the rest of the Avengers. So should he get that hate, Mike? No way. Listen, first of all, it's ridiculous, okay? Because part of the reason that there was all this backlash against him is that he supposedly belonged to some church that was anti-gay and anti-this. He belonged to some part of some some conservative church. Okay, that was one backlash. Two, the idea, the fact that he hasn't said or he's taking a non-political stance, so he doesn't want to either offend Biden voters or Trump voters. He wants to... But dude, he's not a part of the election. So what does it matter? Just come up and say it. No, no way. It definitely matters. But why not? He could go down the route of Scott Baio. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who has respect for Scott Baio? Okay. Come on. You know what? I saw a great joke about Scott Baio. It said, Scott Baio right now looks like if you ordered John Stamos from Wish. You know? <laughs> thought that was pretty amazing <laughs> but at any rate to, to, oh, I, you know I, I don't think he deserves the, the hatred I think it's ridiculous I think people are still bored I mean this is really a good reason why movie theaters should open because people are bored and have nothing else to do I don't think this will last or, or stick I think it'll blow over I think it's ridiculous well you remember his the whole Schwarzenegger family are Republicans so true true they are but I would want to hear his perspective before I condemned him and said, you're a stupid idiot. You know, I, I, I think it's a stupid thing to do, but, I, you know, literally half this country and many of our brown and black brothers are voting for Trump. So clearly there's stuff that we just don't see it through the lens they do. Continue to say that Quibi is old science applied in a new way. Movies and chapters, we, we, you know, there's this guy, you may have heard of him, Charles Dickens. You know, he was around doing this a while ago. It was a smidge before my time, but, uh, you know, stories and chapters have been around for a really, really long time. If, not that you had a crystal ball, but if you knew there was going to be a situation where people were going to be trapped at home and not have the same kind of time, would you have launched uh, Quibi the same or any differently? It's so hard to, you know, that sort of woulda, coulda, shoulda. I'm not good at that stuff. I mean, the fact is we made the best decision we could given the information we had at that moment in time. The circumstances that we are in are regrettable. I'm not going to say to you that I regret it. Because we're learning every day. We've had, this has been invaluable for us. We have millions of people who have downloaded the app. You know, we've got tons of people that are on the platform every day watching a lot of content. And frankly, it's a learning curve for us and we're, it's invaluable. So is this ideal? No. Uh, is it working? Yes. Is it going to make us better and stronger and, and, and a better offering for our customers sooner? Absolutely. Quibi just shut down. I'm kind of in shock that it took only six months. I feel like you and I had just interviewed him over the summer where he was defending 
and going and talking to uh, the press regarding that as soon as we start getting closer to the fall and to next year, everything is going to go back to normal and they're going to be a huge success. I think he took out about $1.8 billion in investment uh, and he decided to shut down along with Meg Whitman, the CEO, who now supposedly Biden's talking to about a cabinet position. Mm. And, um, and, And they decided to shut down. That way they can try and save some of the investment and give it back to the investors. But what a massive failure for one of the core fathers of Hollywood in Jeffrey Katzenberg. What does this do for his legacy? What does this do for his reputation? And would you hire him to do anything at this point? Well, that, that those are all very interesting questions. I mean, I'll, I'll try and answer them each as best as possible. First of all, I think Quibi was you know, a flawed concept. Was it though? I think it's flawed because I think on the one hand, we have people do things, you know, they jump on their phone or they do this or they do that. And the whole idea of Quibi is that quick things that you're, you're engaged in something. Short form, high quality content that you can't supposedly get on YouTube, but you can. That's one. Now, if you're going to bring people over to that, if you're going to make them think there's that, you got to do it gradually. It's not like everybody all of a sudden signed on to whatever it is. I mean, Apple Music couldn't be Apple Music if there wasn't already an ecosystem and already you being used to doing a certain thing. And I think that, did we really want to have something more to squeeze into our time? Is that, right. real, is that really what human well, beings Well, it was supposed wanted? to be a commuter sort of tool for content that um, instead, see, the thing about about YouTube is that there's no you don't have a TV series on YouTube. I mean, now they have like the YouTube originals, but that's not what they made their bread and butter out of. Quibi, the whole thing was, listen, we're going to do shows and you're going to follow the shows. We're going to do like 10, 11 episodes. I think some of the shows were nominated for Emmys. Yes. Uh, they were short form. Yes. They had this uh, feature, this technological feature that if you watch the movie on uh, on po- on Portrait, um, you uh, you got a, a more expansive look at the movie. And then if you had it vertically, then it would fit yes. your phone. Yes. And I thought that was pretty cool. But ultimately, I just I just think that another app of content yeah. just is overwhelming and overkill for the amount that we already have. I heartily concur. And I think that there's no real precedent for it. It's like there are pieces of behavior that suggest maybe there's something there. Yes, there are webisodes. Yes, there are shows. And and yes, are things getting quicker and quicker? Yes, TikTok. Every social media app that comes along allows us to do something quicker. Twitter only had a certain amount of characters. But at the same time, like you said, I don't think that that's what people wanted to do. I think that's part of what people did with their smartphones and their devices. But I don't mm-hmm. think that's necessarily what people want to do. And as a matter of fact, as a filmmaker, ah, you know, sure, you just want as many eyeballs as you can. And and I interviewed a, one of the writers of one of those Emmy-nominated series, and that's what he said. But at the same time, even in this pandemic here, we talked about home theater last week. There are a lot of movies there are a lot of shows. I'm glad I have a home theater, but I really wouldn't want to watch it on my phone. 
<laughs> yeah, and that was you another know? thing that they didn't make it available for like right. Apple TV or Roku because like no, you're not supposed to watch it on TV, but right. I want to. Are you not listening to the customer? So nah. I think there were so many things that went wrong with this, you know, rip Quibi. It was a interesting concept that uh, unfortunately suffered a ugly and horrible demise. Let's get right into our main theme of the show. Well, the embracing of cultures internationally is the key to our mutual salvation on the planet. Without it, we're not going to make it. It was a pleasure interviewing Mr. Louis Gossett Jr. and director Sergio Navarreta, who is Italian. Originally, I thought he was Latino. You know, I kept on calling Sergio as opposed to Sergio. You know, every time you hear me say phonetically a name, it's because I think that the person's Latino. But, you know, not, not everybody responds to that. Like, it's funny. I interviewed uh, Maximiliano Hernandez. See, that, that's, that's the Latino in me, right? As opposed to Maximiliano Hernandez. And some people want me to say it like that. Like, yo, it's interesting. I've, I've had... I've met a couple of whitewashed Hispanics, and I'll say them because I won't say their names, but I've said, I've pronounced their names on a Latino level, phonetically, and they'll look at me like, that's not the way you say my name. And then they'll correct me, and it's the same exact name, but pronounced with an American accent. So instead of Maximiliano, somebody would say, no, 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 it's not Maximiliano, it's Maximiliano. Well, you know, that's interesting, especially contextually to what we're talking about, the whole idea of whitewashing and whitewashing your name, ripping out its origins. No one Latino would pronounce Jesus, Jesus. (laughs) Jesus. Exactly. And clearly, if you look at the entomology of Jesus and where a lot of the foundations of the Christian religion come from, that'll open a whole other door that we're not going to get into in this episode. Exactly. But we should probably do a whitewashing of Hispanic names at some point because it's we could, we, could, we could just sit and read them for 40 minutes. That would be the show. Yeah. <laughs> like. <laughs> But it was very interesting. One of the reasons that we wanted to interview uh, Mr. Gossett Jr. for The Cuban was because initially a friend of mine sent me an email and said, hey, did you see the Hollywood Reporter uh, headline where uh, Gossett Jr. is playing a Cuban? Dude, what, what, what is up with that? You know, And what that kind of, the signal that it sent me was that we're still a country that doesn't want to allow people who are not native to the cultural root of the character that they're playing to not play it and to have and to give the opportunity to a real Cuban, perhaps in this particular case, to play a Cuban. Why? Number one, it'll be authentic. The accent won't distract you if you are a Cuban watcher. I mean, come on. If you have a movie called The Cuban, wouldn't a Cuban want to watch it? But what would happen if a Cuban, which by the way is a very powerful demographic in Florida as well here in the United States, what if they turn it on or watch it on streaming and all of a sudden see an African-American legend playing one of their folk people? Now, this character, Luis Garcia, that he plays is fictionalized. 
But nevertheless, wouldn't that raise a couple of eyebrows from that Cuban culture and say, hey, what's going on there? So we had a chance to talk to Lewis and I point blank just asked them about it. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a tribute to, to some, some very good friends of mine who are Latino. And it goes back to my high school society in Brooklyn, once again, I think all over Manhattan. But uh, our favorite music was Afro-Cuban music. Tito Puente, Tito Rodriguez, Machito, Joe Cuba. And my, part of my heritage is Bahamian. So I would go to Cuba and nobody would know, but I'd go to Bahamas and then 10 minutes later I'd be in Cuba. So there's <laughs> part of the African culture that I have. And, and so this part of my, my, my raising is a, a great, uh, I'm enamored with the combination of the Spanish and, and the African culture. It's very magic. And the, 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 the pachanga, the, 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 uh, the, the mambo and pachanga and all of those song, songs. Well, we used to dance at, our, at high school dances and win awards for them. And then straight out, straight in, some of my best friends in California are, are Latino. So it's time for us to really be together. And what a great statement and tribute it, it, it is to play one of them with honor and love. That music that Dizzy Gillespie discovered when he went there, um, it's a fantastic piece of music. And the man who wrote the, the music for this thing, he's incredible. He's one of the greatest in the world. So it, it all fits like a glove. Something about this topic also occurred to me as I was prepping for us to, to do this. Clearly, whitewashing, it's a huge topic. It's something that's got a long history in film from the beginning of film, from the 30s, having, I won't even get into blackface, but, you know, Werner Olin, who's a Swedish actor, played Charlie Chan from multiple movies, and, and Mickey Rooney playing Mr. Uniyashi in, in Breakfast at Tiffany's in the 60s, 30 years later. In 30 seconds, I got to call the police! All the time, a disturbance. I cannot sleep. I got to get to my rest. I'm an artist. I got to call a vice squad on you. Don't be angry, you dear little man. I won't do it again. You promise not to be angry. I might let you take those pictures we mentioned. Where in? Sometime. Anytime. Good night. Oh. Mr. Go Lightly! Once again, I must protest! If you don't stop with that phonograph right this minute, I'm going to go to the police department! Well, that's more better! So that's Yellowface. And we know Marlon Brando, Ernest Borgnine, all these people have played Mexicans or Latinos. It's part of the tradition of Hollywood. But Latino playing Latino, you said, here we are, we're a country again. And I thought, because Latinos can pass for white, that means then whites feel they can pass for Latino. Even the most celebrated Latino roles... La Bamba. Lou Diamond Phillips. Uh, Lou Diamond Phillips is... He's a Native is American. Native American and Philippine. So, I mean, that that's... It, it's interesting because if you if you really look at the history, there there's so many times that this has happened that you don't even think about. Even, 
you know, and I don't, I'm not looking to trash anybody, but even on television, uh, when Jennifer Lopez produced this show called The Fosters. Okay. And there was a Puerto Rican actor. He quit the show, and they replaced him with an Italian <laughs> actor. So I'm wondering, the whole crossover thing, it's sort of like a double-edged sword. And on the one hand, Latinos can play white. I mean, Andy Garcia started out playing Italians before later on in life he embraced his Latino well yeah listen I, I've had some issues with Andy Garcia himself uh, I had called him a Latino actor and he almost ripped my head off sit down sit down where are you going huh you want to tell him what you did huh and I'm exaggerating there a little bit for dramatic effect but he he called me out he said no 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 I'm not a Latino actor I'm an actor and that kind of just also, you know, drove me a little bit insane because do you have a problem being a Latino actor as well? He goes, well, I'm, I'm that too, but but I don't want to be pigeonholed. At- so it, very interesting. I thought there were some whitewashing aspects of that because here's what it implied to me. My interpretation of that is, listen, are the cameras rolling? Uh, okay, turn <laughs> Turn them off for a second. All right, let me tell you a dirty little secret. If I, not that he said this, but if I just say I'm a Latino actor, what do you think white executives are going to do with me, Jack? They're just going to give me Latino roles. If I say I'm an actor and I behave like an actor, that you don't know if I'm Latino or Italian or whatever the hell I am, I could get many more roles and I can fund my lifestyle making money doing any type of role. So I kind of understand it, but why don't you just say it? Well, why don't you just be transparent about it? You know, uh, and I'll play devil's advocate for you because it's an interesting answer and it makes a lot of sense because as a white actor, you have all those options. You know, Al Pacino can play Tony Montana. Oh my God, but that was horrendous, man. African-Americans, black people love Pacino as Scarface. And I'm not a fan of that. They revere him. Like, no, I've never heard of, hey man, but he's really Italian playing a Latino. Like, what's up, man? Like, everybody kind of looks the other way. They gave him more to pass. Look, Natalie Wood and Richard Boehmer, they're the leads. Maria and Tony in West Side Story. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, they are as far from you know, Puerto Rican as you can get. And let's not even talk about Ben Affleck in Argo as Tony Mendez. I interviewed Tony Mendez. And when I asked him, how do you feel about, you know, Ben Affleck playing you as a Mexican? He looked at me, Tony Mendez, may he rest in peace now. But he said to me, oh, um, I'm not really Mexican. I'm not Hispanic. And I went, wait, but you're your father was Mexican. Yeah, but I didn't really know him. So this was another person that didn't consider themselves Hispanic. And I wrote an article. It was an exclusive interview I had on uh, on NBC News that you can uh, go Google. Uh, Tony Mendez says I'm not Hispanic. And um, I also wrote another interview regarding the polemic that happened with Zoe Saldana playing Nina Simone and was accused of being blackface. And I thought that was really interesting. And I wrote about this also on NBC News. This was one of those issues where I've known Zoe Saldana personally and professionally for decades now. Zoe's black. So for her, Dominican, Puerto Rican actress who is obviously and clearly Afro-Latina, nothing near white, but you could call her brown, but how many black people are brown? So the, sh- the name of this podcast is Brown and Black because we, we, brown and black people, African-Americans, Latinos have similar shades. 
And the African-American community went after her. Oh, that should have been played by some other, a real African-American woman. You're an African-American man, Mike. Should a a, a purely black woman have played it as opposed to an Afro-Latina who is still black? Let me just say this. Let me put this out here as a film critic and as a filmmaker. Okay, and having made a feature film and had to make casting decisions that my producers wanted based on what they thought would give them a return for their money. And I and I know this conversation that a filmmaker has. You know, you may want this super talented unknown somebody and and make them. Everybody would like to say, Yeah, I'd like to Sean Connery was an unknown. But the other side of that is to raise money, to guarantee a TV sale, to guarantee a cable or a VOD, uh, ancillary sales, whatever whatever digital platforms you can sell your movie on after you've hopefully got your movie made or whatever. The more you can stack your cast. Now, this is a Canadian production film for, for the Cubans. So the actress who produced it is well known in Canadian TV. So there's some of that, the business side of it. But you could get an unknown Cuban actor, maybe even a Cuban musician who happened to be great. Should it happen? Absolutely. Should it? Yes. And are there dark skin actresses who I think, who definitely, I think, have enough of a name, enough of a following, enough that, like, yes. But the other side of it is, if you need to raise the money, if you need to make sure your your people who are putting up the money for however much it costs to make the film and make it decently, you have to make these compromises. You have to cast known quantities. You know, I, at the same time, I understand where you're coming from because I've seen it many, many times where, you know, the casting is just, it's its ludicrous. I mean, really, Scott's Exodus. There could have been, there were no Egyptians, you know. Christian Bale was from Egypt. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody went to see that movie for Christian Bale. Nobody. People, no one was going, oh, Christian Bale's in, oh, Exodus, Christian Bale, I gotta go. Wait, Nobody. Matt Damon is in Asia? You know, please, like in that film please, he did in China? Please, please. <laughs> well, okay, but look at Robert Downey Jr. doing blackface, and no one has called him okay, out on it. but it, it was funny Okay, as It was funny as hell, though, uh, I will Fine, say. But, but Ben Stiller wrote it up. Another white guy. Two white guys writing and performing blackface, right? So this is the question then, Mike. Are you okay with Louis Gossett Jr. playing a Cuban in this movie? We heard his answer. What do you think? Should it have gone to a Cuban like Andy Garcia? To answer that, I have to throw back to you for a minute. Do you think most people, if I put... A Cuban, a Colombian, a Dominican, an Ecuadorian, and a Filipino all next to each other. Mm-hmm. How many people do you think could say, okay, I know what this person is, I know what that person is, I know what that Not person. today, because we live in such a mixed society and exactly. a mixed world. Exactly. Everybody from different cultures is having kids. Um, you wouldn't be able to. You wouldn't be able to, exactly. Now, for the average white person... Who has not had contact and all of those names could all be South American countries as far as they're concerned. They all speak Spanish, so it's all the same. How many of them do you think could even tell me what is a Cuban versus a Colombian? Other than some stereotypical reference they have from a movie or a TV show. If that. So that brings us to then our question. Cultural appropriation is what Louis Gossett Jr. did? Or was it cultural appreciation? Well, listening to him talk about Latino music, I'll let the audience be the judge. Jack, to answer your question uh, initially about is it okay or am I okay with it, 
I feel it all comes down to context. You know, I think it comes down to context. I agree. I, I feel Lou Gossett's Jr.'s answers actually were a little eye-opening for me. Made me respect the performance a little more and see where he's coming from as an artist. But at the same time, I'm very keenly aware of how many times, whether you're Black, Latino, Asian, where the images and the opportunities that you have are so few and far between. So, yeah, we need the opportunities. There's another film coming out where... It's based on uh, the true story of this um, Mexican drug lord, Lord Virial, also known as La Barbie. Do you know about this? No. All right. La Barbie's a light-skinned Latino, okay? And you know who they announced is supposed to play him? Who? Charlie Hunnam as Edgar Valdez Villarreal. Yeah, I have a problem with white people playing Latinos. I, I have a problem with white people playing black. I have a problem with white people playing anything outside of their culture that isn't white. And I'll tell you why, because since the birth of a nation, the white propaganda has been at an all-time high where white directors, white studios, white producers want to tell white stories, and they've been telling those stories for close to 120 years. And in those 120 years, what is it not enough to... Did the well of white stories just kind of dry up that now you got to come to our stories and, and, and become a David Ayers and have Shia LaBeouf, you know, play a, a, a wannabe Chicano? Well, you know, first of all, Jack, if you remember what um, John Leguizamo told us, um, Latinos don't want to see themselves on screen. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, yeah, let me ask I guess you. So. Now, you say Cuban, you know, in The Big Lebowski. There was a Cuban in The Big Lebowski? No. There was Jesus Quintana, played by John Turturro, who was supposed to be Cuban. Oh, well, yeah, I got a problem with that, too. <laughs> in retrospect, I mean, listen, post-George Floyd... I didn't notice those things mm -hmm. because I thought that that was the mandate of the moment. That that was the rule of law. It's like, we can't, what are you going to do about it? Latino boy. I'm going to play one of your people. And what are you going to say? I'm a celebrity. I'm all powerful. Hey, you're going to love because we've been doing this for hundreds of years and you can't play white people, but we can play you. And we How can play you, like you that? opposite you, like like Armando Sante in Mambo Kings. It's like right, <laughs> right, right. It, it's just ridiculous. I mean, so yeah, anybody who's white, even Italian, playing a Latino like Al Pacino in Scarface today, I have a problem. I'll let those slide because we didn't do anything about it then, and you know you can't. You can't tell Al Pacino, you know, hey, listen, can you go redo that with a different guy? To me, moving forward, we just have to make sure that that doesn't happen again. on video on demand right now is the movie The Cuban, directed by Sergio Navarreta and starring Louis Gossett Jr., amongst other actors. The Cuban is a musical journey of love, friendship, and the power of the imagination. When a naive pre-med student gets her first job in a nursing home, an unexpected friendship with Luis Garcia, played by Louis Gossett Jr., an elderly Cuban musician, reignites her love of music and changes her life forever. 
His name is Luis, and he used to be this famous musician back in Cuba. He even played the Cotton Club. He played with Bauza, Machido, Dizzy Gillespie. And he told you all of this. <laughs> Did you really play with all these people? Ladies and gentlemen, El Guitarista! All this nonsense. It's a Cuban boy. Am I right? Is that you? Yeah, we've known each other a long time since we uh, participated. Forgotten legend. And you're sure it's him? You don't have time to talk to your dad. He enjoys company. He's a drunk. Things are not so simple. Well, why not? Why can't they be simple? You must follow our care approach, Miss Ayub. It's created for a reason. He is a human being. We gave him an injection. No. It was doctor's orders. Luis is still a dying man. You need to wrap your head around but that. But that doesn't mean he can't live now. You and me will uh, teach us. We teach people how to love. Huh? How to love. First, we asked the Oscar winner about the challenge of playing someone with dementia who is practically catatonic at the beginning of the film. I was very impressed with Robert De Niro's performance in, in the film that he had to do that. He had to go from normal to oh, uh, Yeah, I think it was Awakening. Awakening, absolutely. And I was very impressed with that. So those challenges as an actor, I look forward to doing. Like giving birth on screen, for example, in Enemy Mind. But um, mm. the challenge... Ah. It makes, makes, makes you totally involved. And, and if you, you prepare your instrument like they do at the actor studio where it comes from, you're prepared for anything that comes to you. And it's, it's, it's a joy. I haven't worked in my entire life. I've been doing it for almost 65 years. I have not worked a day in my life. Trying to help create <laughs> moments one after another. It's a joy. Yeah, and that's what you get when you cast a legend. <laughs> like, he made it look easy, uh, but every time I called action, the, the whole entire set just went silent, and everybody was just staring at that monitor, watching magic happen. And then bringing that into, a, into an editing studio with my editor, Jane, um, it just makes, makes the job so, so pleasurable and so uh, re rewarding because you have options. The only way I could really pretend it, like when Alessandro wrote it in the script, the coming-to-life moment, the only way I could really understand it is to see it in real life. Like I'd seen videos and research videos from researchers and scientists that showed people playing music to Alzheimer's patients and then them coming to life. The only time that it really crystallized for me is when I saw it firsthand with a musician, former musician from Argentina who was in a nursing home and he was completely catatonic and his wife started playing these Argentinian songs to him and he came to life in front of my eyes. And that's when I knew that I had the artistic liberty to do that on screen, like to capture that on screen. Because before that, I was feeling insecure about like this idea of, oh, you know, someone's going to play music and he's suddenly going to come to life. Well, the embracing of cultures internationally is the key to our mutual salvation on the planet. Without it, we're not going to make it. 
I have a foundation called E-Racism, which is the thing you can look up. But anything that has to do with us cooperating with one another for the benefit of us all, and the universal arts, universal politics, whatever it is, is necessary. It's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a redemption of us being together as a people. I'm going to give it to, to my Italian brother now. It's up to him. The music has the power to transcend cultural barriers. And to be honest, I, I didn't know we were doing something unique until we started screening it in the U.S. And people kept saying, you know, there's a melding of cultures here. There's a real statement. And, you know, for us, it was just an honest reflection of who we are growing up in Toronto in a very multicultural city where, you know, my neighbors were Jamaican, my other neighbors were Indian. So there was always that openness and curiosity to share. When I was growing up, this idea of tolerance never sat quite right with me. Um, we have to be more than tolerant. We have to be open and at least curious to, to explore other cultures. So it was very important to me. And I think the immigrant story is universal, whether, you know, you're Italian, Puerto Rican, Mexican or black. It's, I think everybody can relate to that, what this Afghan family goes through, you know, that feeling of alienation and being an outsider. I was born in Canada and I, growing up, I got beat up for being different. It sounds strange, but I never felt quite Canadian until later on. Then I realized that Canadian culture is, is really a culmination of many different cultures together. And that's what makes us unique and successful. So I started embracing that later on in life. How does Hollywood see a movie like this? Because I wish more movies had this international cast with these international storylines that are not just about black or white or Latino, but it's about everyone. Was this an easy type of film to develop and create with its cast, or was it a little bit more difficult? I think it was just an honest reflection of who we are as people here. It came very, it came very organically from the writer, And then uh, regarding the casting process, like there's a lot of conversation now about cultural appropriation and should one person play this role and over that. And Brando played uh, one of the most iconic Italian-American roles in history with The Godfather. And I believed it and so did everyone else in the world. Just a testament to, to an incredible artist portraying a role. Generally how, like I don't like auditions and obviously with a lot of the actors that were in it, we know their work. So we sort of envision this person in this role and that person in that role. You know, the show Rayak Dashlu, I already had that in mind. Uh, and then it's really a lot of luck, like the stars aligning with scheduling. It's some of that, you know, is, is uh, the gods of cinema shine on you or they, or, or they don't. How does Hollywood see a movie like this? Because I wish more movies had this international cast with these international storylines that are not just about black or white or Latino, but it's about everyone. Was this an easy type of film to develop and create with its cast, or was it a little bit more difficult? I think it was just an honest reflection of who we are as people here. It came very, it came very organically from the writer, And then uh, regarding the casting process, like there's a lot of conversation now about cultural appropriation and should one person play this role and over that. And Brando played uh, one of the most iconic Italian-American roles in history with The Godfather. And I believed it and so did everyone else in the world. Just a testament to, to an incredible artist portraying a role. Generally, how like I don't like auditions and obviously 
with a lot of the actors that were in it, we know their work. So we sort of envisioned this person in this role and that person in that role. You know, the show Ray Agdashlu, I already had that in mind. Uh, and then it's really a lot of luck, like the stars aligning with scheduling. It's some of that, you know, is, is uh, the gods of cinema shine on you or they, or, or they don't. In terms of Hollywood, this was a tough sell, right? Like, I could have shopped this all over Hollywood. I don't think anybody would have really got it in terms of what I was trying to do or what we were trying to create. But it was helpful to have people like Hilario Duran, who's Cuban. He, he did all the music, the soundtrack, and he, he appears in the movie. All the, a lot of the Afghan characters were played by Afghan actors, so they were really instrumental in helping us understand that culture. Mr. Gossett has a rich history of growing up in Brooklyn, so he, he got it, uh, you know, he understood that. So we were all on the same page, really, about what we were setting out to do. I don't know. I think Hollywood is really reluctant to take risks. I really like the 70s because it was a bit of a renaissance in cinema where the auteur was able to tell an authentic story, and now it's all about sales projections. So I think we're going in the wrong... We went in the wrong direction, but now, hopefully, I don't know what... You know, I haven't worked with Netflix or some of the other streamers, but hopefully they're more open. They see the value in diverse stories. What made you decide that this is not just something that you wanted to be in, that you wanted to be part of? Well, I've had some, some pretty uh, uh, interesting career shooting films around the world where there's a combination of different cultures cooperating with one with something artistic for the benefit of us all. It's, a, you know, from, from the Book of Negroes to uh, Sadat. So I've worked with international crews and there's magic when those cultures come positively to create a piece of art. And I think we need more films like that. It happened, of course, in, in, in the Book of Negroes and also happened in, in uh, Foster Boy and a couple of other things I did with HBO. But I think I look forward to all those things where the cultures mix together for a successful story. The more, the better. The more people get to like that, the better. And uh, so it's happening. It's happening in sports even as we speak. You know, you can name, uh, you can go around the world in basketball and baseball these days. And, and in movies, it's, it's completely diverse. And it's, it's the best story that we can tell. Mr. Gossett Jr., wanted to ask you, with the Cuban, where does this film find you at this stage of your career? Finds me at the ultimate. I've been doing this since 1953. That's over 60 years. And uh, my life, my dreams, my feelings, and, and actors wish for this. It all comes together with a piece of art. The last couple of things I've done all have come together the same way. The highlight, of course, is the Cuban. And, of course, the Watchmen and mm. others. It's all beginning to fit. And I get to, to uh, ex express my artistic self in the mix of a whole bunch of people from everywhere to do a piece of work, a, a, hopefully a beautiful piece of work, Enemy Mind with Dense Quaid. So it's now we seem mm. to attract those stories when we're successful and we have the same spiritual mindset. And my spiritual mindset is the combination of us all to make a wonderful positive story and statement. So this is almost like a musical. There was so much music, but it's not. So how did you decide, like, just how much music you needed to put in there and just how much drama? How, how easy was it to strike that balance? A lot of it was really planned in advance. A lot of it was written into the script, so a lot of thought went into it beforehand. And then uh, working with someone like Hilario Duran, who's Grammy-nominated, uh, incredible Cuban pianist, um, really was really helpful. And then working in partnership with uh, my music supervisors uh, was helpful as well. 
And you know, I have a musical background, so that's kind of how I see the, how I see the world, how I see and hear things uh, rhythmically. And um, and my editor Jane as well has a music background. So unlike other editors that focus a lot on the visuals, she was able to focus on visuals and sound elements. So when we put a scene together, we recorded the music before we shot the movie. So that was all very helpful. And uh, so we had it playing between takes. You know, uh, when we wake up in the morning, we were listening to the songs of the day. Uh, it sort of got everybody in the in the same frame of mind, and uh, I found that extremely helpful. Sergio, t- talk to me a little bit about shooting in Cuba. Were there any challenges? Uh, most people that go to Cuba to shoot a film, you know, it's not always easy to shoot there it's not like being in LA <laughs> um, <laughs> right <laughs> for you did you encounter any obstacles I don't know how much I get I don't know how much I could say on the air <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the Cuba stuff really came out of uh, my dad's obsession with Cuba and me really wanting to hate it and prove to him how dreadful it is and you know the system and all this kind of thing and i just fell in love with it once we met three companies owned by the government production companies in cuba and we we selected one and we just kind of went down and it's weird i mean we were only shooting for a week but there was a month of prep for that one week of shooting to give you an example and then on the day of we'd show up and nothing was there the way that it was presented that you know like some of the nightclubs switched out at the last second. Like, so it taught me a lot about just being fluid and thinking quick on my feet. And some of the shots, like her going in the water at the, at the end, all that really just came out of not getting what I originally wanted. And then realized that, hey, I, if I relax, drink Cuban rum and just kind of follow the rhythms of Cuba, I actually became more creative. And I think we, we just got better stuff just by surrendering. Mr. Gossett, before we started recording, you were talking about uh, actually going to Cuba a few times uh, in your life. Um, Talk to me about brown and black unity. Um, Why is that so important, and what is your uh, affinity to the Latin culture? Well, in doing research about man and how they traveled around the world, uh, Cuban was one thing, came out of Spain, obviously, and then it it kind of uh, uh, got into its patois. And then it's obvious, and obvious evidence, that they met with the African culture somewhere along the line. And the combination of both was uh, in, in the rooms and behind doors, and all of a sudden it exploded. It exploded during the time when they were having uh, great nightclubs and stuff, and the, and the uh, Copacabana, who this uh, character was the star of, exploded into Afro-Cuban. I was reunited with it with Dizzy Gillespie, who went to Cuba. And that's where I think the, the frame, the, the phase, Afro-Cuban started. What a, what a natural combination of music. Uh, European-Spanish uh, adapted by the, the, the African culture in a third world country to create this, this music of happiness and feeling. It's, it, it's, just, it's a magic thing. I get good pimples when I hear about it. And all I remember is the line, all of the women in the, in the party all want to dance with me. <laughs> Full of dance and good feeling and, and happiness. 
a beautiful magic combination. Afro-Cuban is a beautiful magic combination. I just have to ask you, and, and forgive me, Sergio, I have to ask Mr. Gossett, are you surprised at all by the success of, of The Watchmen? Uh, I'm very pleasantly surprised. In shock, in positive shock, at the reception of the last episode, which had six million people watch it. Mm. So it must, have been, it must have been time for the story to be told properly. It must have been about time. It, was, it, make, it makes my heart feel good that people are, are thinking about it even today. And, they, and it encourages them to do other light films so we can get to the, the exit of some of our problems and get together to do some pretty nice films. A nice film coming since, since The Watchmen. It's very exciting to be part of this art, this business, to see the new stuff coming out that before I don't think we'd ever had a chance. Thank you both for, for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you very much for giving us that, Mr. Lewis, and your performance, and Mr. Navarreta. And thanks for, for doing this show, Brown and Black, man. It's, uh, it's important to, to really have these open conversations, so thank yeah. you. It's, it's such a powerful thing, Brown and Black. It's time for us to, to get in the middle of the mix and mix it up. It makes, it makes the soup much, much richer than tasting. <laughs> That's it for this 19th episode of Brown and Black. Thank you to Louis Gossett Jr. and director Sergio Navarreta for coming on the show, and thank you for listening. If you would like to support this podcast, please subscribe to our show and leave a review. Your help will allow us to be heard by many more people. Also, Mike and I would like to hear from you about today's episode. Now that theaters are reopening in New York State and other parts of the country, are you okay going to the movies during a second wave this fall and winter? You can actually call us and leave us a voicemail at our new listener hotline. The number is 949-891-2446. 949-891-2446. We would love to hear from you and post some of your answers in our upcoming episode. See you next week on another episode of Brown and Black. to turn your best ideas into a thriving online business? Introducing Shopify, your no-excuses business partner. You might not realize, but our podcast, More Than Mammies, it's a business. And we started it, of course, to talk about maternity, not to become an e-commerce expert. So yeah, we needed some help selling our merch and getting our store up and running. Another sale. Shopify is a commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. No matter if you are a garage entrepreneur or a big business, Shopify is the only tool you need to start and grow your business without the struggle. With Shopify single dashboard, you can manage orders, shipping, and payments from anywhere, giving you the insights you need wherever you are. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash sonoro or lowercase. Go to Shopify 
Shopify.com slash sonoro to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash sonoro. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.